This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brenton Noctegal. Hi. In the new Trumpet edition up on the website this week, there's a major feature article from Gerald Flurry, Germany is transforming before your eyes. This article highlights a crucial end-time biblical prophecy, one that Herbert W. Armstrong highlighted for decades and one that the Trumpet has repeatedly pointed to, a major milestone in end-time events that we've been watching for, and that is the rise of Germany to lead a unified European empire. Mr. Flurry's Trumpet article focuses on the major steps toward militarization that Germany took after the Ukraine war began, and that is a key development that we're seeing right now. A related development we're seeing, and this was particularly notable this past week, is the growing appetite for stronger German leadership, both inside Germany and across Europe. For this story, we're going to go straight to Richard Palmer. So this week, we've just seen absolutely horrific footage coming out of Ukraine. Uh, you know, I think we're all pretty familiar now with all of the images of, of the carnage, of uh, all the people being killed in the areas around Kiev. Uh, there's been reports just over the last, I think just today, there was a, a train full of civilians that was targeted by a, a Russian missile. Uh, Russia has now been kicked out of the uh, the human rights panel by the UN General Assembly. A lot of focus on all of the civilian deaths going on in Ukraine, and that's been uh, dominating the news, rightly so, this week. And uh, it's really got a, a lot of people talking. But one of the things that it's got a lot of people talking about is Germany. Uh, it's really put the spotlight now on Germany's relationship with Russia. And I think it's we've had uh, a couple of kind of very interesting trends where this has put the focus on you know having Germany do more to confront Russia. You know, you, Ukraine put out a video I saw just today, basically saying, "Hey, Europeans, if you're filling up your cars uh, with Russian gas, you know, you are the ones funding the missiles that are raining down on our houses. You are uh, you know, you're responsible to this. So there's been a lot of uh, pushback against Germany for, for what they've been doing for this relationship with Russia. A lot of business leaders within Germany want to kind of continue this relationship with, with Russia, uh, but there's a growing attack on that uh, relationship as well. And so what this is leading to is this interesting situation where there's a call for Germany to do more. And Germany is responding to that call, uh, not in ways that actually help Ukraine and not in ways that stand up to Russia, but in ways that build up their military. But it is still fascinating now to see the way that Germany, the way that Germany's emboldenment of Russia and their support of Russia has led to people calling for them to do more to kind of dominate Europe. Uh, it's it's really interesting the way that it's worked out. So within the European Parliament, you had Guy Verhofstadt, who's a, a very 
long-standing member, probably one of the most famous members of the European Parliament. He had a viral video that has been viewed, I think, a few million times now, where he was criticizing the Parliament for not doing more. But he also directly called out Germany and said, uh, you know, Germany, we need leadership. He said, from such a Germany, I expect leadership. You know, we come on, Germany, lead us. We need we need a strong response to what's going on in Russia and Germany that needs to come from you. Uh, I think I've mentioned before we had Sweden had an article talking about, well, we need Germany to get a nuclear bomb. We don't trust France to protect us. We don't trust Europe to protect us. We need Germany to get a, a nuclear bomb. Spiegel had something just today, just come out a few minutes ago, atomic protective shield, Europe's bomb. Uh, Putin's war sparks a debate in Berlin that was considered taboo for decades. Does Europe need its own nuclear war weapons in order to deter Russia in an emergency without the United States? So more and more people from outside Europe are saying, well, Germany, we need you to step up and take the lead in this crisis to deal with all of these civilians that are being killed within Ukraine. And you're seeing a similar response from inside Germany. We've talked about this um, big turnaround that came from Germany at the end of February, where they announced they were going to dramatically spend more on their military. And we talked about how the response to that, everyone was overwhelmingly in favor of Germany spending all of that money. Well, that's changed. The polls have shifted. It's no longer people saying, yes, I support what Schultz is doing. The majority now are saying, Schultz is not going far enough. That massive announcement from the end of February, that is, that is not enough. Uh, and so 37% said that it was sufficient. 45% said it was insufficient. Only 11% now say he's gone too far. So uh, you're seeing more within Germany saying we need to do more to take the lead. You're seeing more within Europe saying, Germany, uh, you need to take the lead and step up here. How much of the criticism of Germany would you say is because of what we've talked about, this this secret deal between Germany and Russia and Germany's fake war against Russia and Germany undermining international efforts to punish Russia versus uh, the recognition that Europe needs strong leadership and Germany is the nation best fitted for that role? I think it's a mixture of the two. And I think the interesting, it, it, it leads to this, this mixture of the two leads to then Germany only addressing one of these criticisms while kind of pretending to address both. So yes, I think a, a lot of it is, you know, Germany enabled this. I saw even even Paul Krugman at the New York Times, I guess what they say about stop clocks uh, is correct, <laughs> had an article, how Germany became Putin's enabler. Uh, so yes, a lot of this is that Germany has, uh, has allowed and even helped this to happen. Uh, and people are out there saying, well, Germany has blood on its hands over this. But there is also a strong criticism of Germany uh, that is saying, you know, look, Germany has kind of ridden on the coattails of the United States and other countries for a long time. They have not spent the minimum, the NATO minimum on their defense. They could afford to spend much more on their military. And so this has been kind of mixed in completely with this criticism of you have enabled Russia. And so then what Germany does is when it's presented with this kind of mixed criticism, it responds only to this criticism of you're not spending enough money. And so it says, okay, we'll do more. We'll spend our military. We'll, 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 be, we'll boost our military. We'll do all these other things. Uh, 
and then kind of saying, oh, well, we're addressing the criticism. Now, I don't, I think the temperature will heat up on their relationship with Russia. I mean, the situation is kind of getting more and more ridiculous where, um, you know, they promise, they promise tanks to Ukraine and then the chancellor comes along and says, well, hang on a minute, let me think about that. And they delay that. You know, they keep promising things to Ukraine, promising weapons to Ukraine, only to come up with more and more bits of paperwork uh, to to delay it. And that relationship with Russia is becoming you know, incredibly unpopular. So I think they are they this kind of sleight of hand where they pretend to address this criticism by beefing up their military has only taken them so far. Uh, but uh, it's a response where that they've put, definitely put much more of the focus within Germany on becoming more militarily powerful while not really doing that much so far about their relationship with Russia. Bible prophecy really gives us the the, the major trends and and threads of this story to look for. The fact that you have so much, uh, I I guess, comfort within these other European nations of Germany stepping up, and you have lawmakers, you have officials from these countries openly saying, Germany, we need you to be a stronger leader within Europe— uh, it really is extraordinary when you put it in light of those prophecies that Herbert W. Armstrong highlighted for decades, that Gerald Flurry has drawn so much attention to. I think anyone who was familiar with the the message that Herbert W. Armstrong put out there, when they see headlines like this, when they hear speeches like this, this has to be really ringing the alarm bells. Right. I mean, in that latest trumpet print that you mentioned, you've got that cover article from the from the editor as well. Uh, Bible prophecy comes alive in Ukraine. Mr. Flurry writes, the most important nation to watch right now is Germany. How will it respond to Putin's war in Ukraine or, or on Ukraine? This Ukrainian war will speed up the rise of the prophesied German-led Holy Roman Empire. It is happening already. And really, that quote is is a summary. It's a good summary of what Mr. Flurry has been saying for, for 20 years or more. And it's a summary of what Mr. Armstrong was saying before. There's a section in the trumpet print that just draws attention to everything that uh, that Mr. Armstrong said before then. Uh, I think a, 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 a kind of a section there, he was right about Europe that goes through some of these quotes that he was making uh, you know, as far back as 1950 uh, and before. So absolutely, the Bible prophecy has led both of these two men, whenever Russia acts aggressively, to say, watch how Germany responds, because the Bible tells us Germany is going to rise, that there's going to be this demand for for German leadership, that you're going to have a 10 nations of of Europe led by by Germany. And I think the news this week, just seeing how eager even Europe is to have Germany lead them, that this thing that they would have been very reticent to, to approve in the past, they are now asking for, come on, Germany, lead us. that is uh, that shows you just how quickly the prophecy that these men were talking about, the prophecy that comes directly from the Bible, uh, how quickly that could be reality. So uh, I'd really encourage our readers to go and, and look at that latest trumpet print edition and get up to speed uh, with that prophecy because it is being fulfilled very fast. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Richard. These events in Germany are flowing out of the war in Ukraine, which continues to play out. 
But uh, events and momentum seem to be shifting in some ways. To get the latest on what is happening there, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yeah, the big news is that Russia is reorienting its forces in Ukraine. We, we spoke briefly about this last week, about how Russia was suddenly saying that it never really intended to conquer Kiev and other cities toward the north and west. And at that time, there was a little bit of evidence that had started to emerge, just showing that Russia was uh, drawing down a bit from those regions. But in the days since then, Russia has fully withdrawn from Kiev and Cherniev to uh, Kiev's north and other parts of that region. And what the Russians left behind in those areas, it's grotesque beyond words. Richard Palmer actually did a, a report about this on the Wednesday episode of Trumpet Hour about just the stunning wartime atrocities that the Russian soldiers committed in places like Bucha in the outskirts of Kiev. So I would encourage listeners to check that out if they haven't yet. But besides exposing those atrocities, this withdrawal has also shown that Ukraine's resistance is forcing Russia to revise its goals, at least in the short term. So Russia is now planning to focus all of its forces on the eastern parts of Ukraine. The east is, of course, where Russia has been you know, fighting Russia, uh, fighting Ukraine since 2014 at kind of a low level conflict. But now the Russians are zeroing in on this. And even though their forces have been depleted, to have them all focused on this region, the Donbass region in the east, means that the situation there will just greatly intensify in the days and weeks ahead. And uh, Richard just mentioned that we already got a bit of a preview into that intensification with this horrendous rocket attack that just happened on a train station in the east. This was full of civilians who were trying to evacuate the area in anticipation of this Russian anticip uh, attack. And early reports say 30 were killed and 100 wounded. These are, you know, men, women, and children, not military people at all. So it's just perverse and evil beyond words. And this is probably an indication of how things will go in eastern Ukraine in the days and weeks ahead. It's quite extraordinary. We've uh, talked about just how much, uh, how superior Russian forces are to Ukrainian forces and how there has been uh, not nearly as much support from the West for Ukraine in their resistance against Russia as, as one might expect or one might hope. But um, it does seem like the Ukrainian forces have at least had some success in repelling uh, Russia from being able to fulfill its most ambitious aims. That's right. At least in the short term, they have. I mean, it could well be that once Russia, if they are able to conquer the East, then they would, you know, decide to try again after they have a year or two to regroup mm. to try once again for the capital. But at least in the short term, it looks like the Ukrainians have repelled that. So uh, talk about this, uh, this military aid package that uh, the United States has put together for Ukraine. Sure, yes. It was on Wednesday that the U.S. announced that it's giving a, another $100 million worth of military aid to Ukraine. So that's on top of about $2 billion worth that America has already given to the Ukrainians in recent months. And this latest batch will be made up largely of Javelin and Stinger systems. Those are the uh, shoulder-fired missiles that Ukrainians have been using very effectively to destroy Russian tanks and even warplanes. And the, uh, the package will also also include 100 switchblade sets, which are 
basically exploding drones that have a great deal of firepower, more more firepower than the javelins and stingers. Um, America has also set up a delivery system now that only takes about four days to get weaponry from the U.S. to pass-off points just outside of Ukraine, and then just one more day to get it inside the country where the soldiers need it. So that's by far the fastest these kinds of transfers have, have ever been able to happen before. So you know, that's some very welcome news for the Ukrainians. And we are seeing more and more analysts expressing confidence that Ukraine could actually win this war, thanks to things like that. But at the same time, it's impossible to know what Vladimir Putin is planning, and just how far he's he's willing to go. How, how uh, difficult have the punitive measures of other nations been against Russia? Uh, we've talked about just how determined Putin is to secure these resources in Ukraine and and to uh, to continue to press the borders outward uh, to re, uh, to reclaim some of that former Soviet territory. Uh, the measures that other nations have been taking they they continue to to try to um, to repel Russia in whatever way that they can. They took more measures this week. Uh, is this is this really starting to uh, to sting as far as uh, Putin is concerned? I'm sure it is stinging, but uh, but I still think that it's insufficient what's being done by the West, especially as, as Richard just talked about. Germany is stymieing a lot of the harshest aspects of the sanctions packages, uh, the, the SWIFT measures, for example. Many banks are being left untouched by that, many Russian banks, thanks to Germany's intervention, because they want to still be able to buy Russian oil and, and gas. And I think that's just shameful that uh, that the measures are not biting more. And it, it is putting some pain on the Russian people, but the hope of those sanctions is that the pain would be so intense that it would drive the Russian people to remove Putin from power to to you know to affect regime change and i think we're nowhere near that point well we certainly are very moved to uh to just see the the wreckage that uh, russia has left behind you see these uh, ukrainians that are returning back to uh to their former homes and they're and they're seeing uh just the the savagery of the uh that the russians uh committed while they were there in in control of some of those areas. Uh, and it, it really does bring to light some of those uh, prophecies that demonstrate just how bad times are going to get in the time ahead. Yeah, that's a great point. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written a, a powerful article back in our February 2020 issue. It's called The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. And that article is built around a prophecy in the book of Luke, that says an era called the times of the Gentiles will very soon begin in our lifetimes. He talks in that article about how British and American leadership for decades was the main stabilizing force for civilization. It was overwhelmingly positive and, and stabilizing, and it brought you know blessings to many people. But that era is now ending, and the times of the Gentiles is beginning. And in this new era, we can expect the U.S. and the U.K. to lose power, while countries like Russia will become the new global hegemons, and, and they'll just rule with unbelievably uh, you know, robust and evil force. So right now we see Russia stomping like a colossus over Ukraine. And China, of course, is also growing more powerful, which we'll talk about in the second half. And, uh, and Europe as well is, is really shifting into overdrive to militarize and to really put teeth on its foreign policy, as, as Richard just covered. 
And this Bible prophecy tells us that all of that is the sort of thing that we should be expecting right now. You can, you can really see from all that, that we're in the early phases of this shift into the times of the Gentiles. Well, thank you for that, Jeremiah. The climax of man's rule over man. We'll link to that in the show notes for the program today. The Israeli government has really always been fragile, this this new government, uh, governing with the barest majority in the parliament. Well, now it's in crisis, thanks to the decision of a single lawmaker. For this story, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, this hodgepodge government led by Neftali Bennett of the Yamina party and left-wing parties and Arab parties, uh, it was, as you said, extremely fragile for the past 10 months that it's been in power since Netanyahu was finally removed from office after a decade in power. And they had only the slimmest majority, 61 seats in the Knesset. Uh, and just this past week, one of a member of uh, Naftali Bennett's own Yamina party, um, Edith Silman is her name. She resigned from her position inside the party. So this basically means that there's a 60-60 split right down the middle. And it'll only take one more member of the Knesset to resign from the government and then it's all done. Basically, they're, they're most likely is going to go to another election to see who will come back into power uh, in, or back uh, who will rule Israel. Now, there is a bit of a process that has to take place. Uh, Israel is in recess right now, at least the Knesset's in recess. So for the next five weeks, there's going to be no change to the prime, minister, prime minister's position. And you're going to see a lot of wrangling within these next five weeks to try and get perhaps an Arab party, an Arab Knesset member that doesn't belong to the government to step in to fill this void so they still have a, a majority. Um, however, it does seem, and you're also going to see Netanyahu, who is the leader of the opposition right now in his Likud faction, uh, the most, the, the largest single um single political party inside the Knesset with 30 plus seats, he's going to work as fast and as hard as he can to entice some other members of the current government to give up their position so that it could go to fresh elections. So while the government still holds for the moment, the wheels are off and dissolution is only a matter of time. It's uh Really impossible to say for sure uh, at this point, but you're looking at uh, Israeli politics from the standpoint of biblical prophecy, and we we pride ourselves on at least having the the long view and knowing where things may end up. Ultimately, sometimes it takes uh, a lot of twists and turns we weren't expecting. But how are you looking at what is happening with the Israeli government in light of the prophecies we understand? Well, it is it is really interesting. I mean. This took, this took place on Wednesday, and, and this is what uh, the Jerusalem Post said on Wednesday. Silman's announcement put, for, put into motion a process that will bring about the dissolution of the current government. It's going to happen. They said this as well. No one could say with certainty how it would happen or when it would happen, but most agree that it's just a matter of time before Prime Minister Naftali, Naftali's Bennett unique government is brought down. Speaking about what happened on Wednesday, and and I I was watching this, and then the same moment, or within the same hour or two, I watched quickly Tucker Carlson's segment on I think it was it was Wednesday or Tuesday Tuesday night. So I was watching it on Wednesday over here, and it was all about what was happening at the White House on Tuesday, President Obama back there, and him basically saying that 
It's been decided. It's only a matter of time. Biden's gone. How it happens, we don't know, but they've given up on him. It's going to be all over there as well for him. And here I was watching the same thing take place in Israel, how this government, it's going to be brought down. It is going to fail. It's only a matter of time. And of course, in the case of the United States, we're expecting, we've expected this to happen and a return to power based on biblical prophecy of, of President Donald Trump. Mr. Flurry has been very direct about this for the past uh, few years or past couple of years, ever since Biden came in power. And really, if you look at the biblical prophecies of why President Trump comes back into power, there is also a very close relationship at that time with the state of Israel, biblical Judah. And so it makes sense then that we would see a return to, to power of the right of those that are, that are aligned with President Trump. And the relationship between Netanyahu and Trump was the best relationship between an Israeli prime minister and American president in history. And so I think that, you know, something significant happened this week. I think the wheels fell off in many ways of both governments. It became obvious to more people. And in the case of Israel, the descent has begun. And while the Bible doesn't say that Netanyahu's going to come back into power, given that we know President Trump will, and that there will be a relationship with Israel, it makes sense that someone like him or him, he himself uh, will, will, will lead Israel once again. What should someone read who, uh, who wants to learn more about those prophecies? Mr. Flurry talks about this in his article from last year, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power? And he's got a section about Judah and how Trump will have a relationship with Judah or, biblical, or the modern nation of Israel in there as well. All right. Thank you for that, Brent. America's southern border is experiencing an unprecedented surge of illegal immigration. For this story, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Joe Biden has sat in the Oval Office for nearly 15 months now, and in that time, 2.5 million illegal immigrants have been apprehended at the southern border. So by, by way of comparison, that's slightly more people than live in Houston, Texas, the nation's fourth largest city. Uh, and that's definitely the fastest rate of uh, illegal immigration in American history. Yet rather than a crackdown on border security, the Biden administration is actually taking moves that will encourage even more illegal immigrants to come to the United States this summer. Uh, specifically, they're rescinding Title 42. Now, Title 42, it's a Trump-era public health measure that basically allowed the federal government to deport illegal immigrants from countries with infectious diseases such as COVID-19. Now, the Biden administration, they've reviewed the policy and uh, determined that while it's still too dangerous to let unvaccinated Canadian truckers into the country— <laughs> uh, it is now safe enough to let unvetted illegal immigrants into the country and not humanitarian to deport them if they have COVID or if they've been to uh, a part of Mexico or Central America with a high COVID infection rate. That's a that's a great point. <laughs> it, I mean, you just you just look at uh, uh, the way that policies like that are enacted and it, it, it just exposes how nakedly political uh, these decisions are. And, and I mean, people are noticing this because this is a this is something that where uh, border security is definitely border security and crime uh, 
are the two issues that Biden polls the lowest in, which is saying something because his approval ratings are uh, are really low anyway. And so they, uh, the morning consultant survey data indicates that 56% of likely voters oppose Biden's plan to rescind Title 42. Uh, that 56% of voters includes basically 80-something percent of Republicans who are opposed to this. And even a fair-sized chunk, like 18%. Of Democrats who are uh, opposed to this. I was actually kind of surprised. Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia, who's uh, one of the more radical senators uh, that we have, he even came out and uh, and opposed this rescinding Title 42. And I think that's partially due to the fact that he, he is from a, a, a part of Georgia where there's pretty credible allegations that they had to do some election rigging <laughs> to get him in the Senate. Anyway, there was a runoff. Mm -hmm. He was the election rigging, the runoff election. So the fact that there was a, a runoff, an allegation of election rigging uh, reveals that his he's kind of on a razor's edge with his public support anyway. And something like this could see him ousted from from office if his uh if his constituents are really against this. So he he came out against it. And then of course the Republicans have been even more outspoken. Sir uh Senator John uh Cornyn had came out and basically predicted he said there's going to be a human tsunami across the border because of this and the people who will benefit the most are the drug cartels there's actually three states arizona louisiana and missouri who are suing the biden administration over this uh and a number of law enforcement officials who've pointed out that the uh the cartels in addition to trafficking drugs uh, also smuggle human beings across the border and oftentimes charge a thousand to 1500 per person uh and so they uh they probably didn't get that money for all 2.5 million illegals who've crossed since biden was elected but if they're uh if they're getting that money from hundreds of thousands of people that they're helping smuggle across the border i mean they're likely making millions off this migrant crisis uh and and likely to make even millions more now that biden's made the rescinded this title 42 and basically told everyone throughout central america and mexico that if you come here well we, we can't deport you just because we think you might have covid or you came from an area from covid uh you'll have to you'll have to stay i even saw something i probably need to look into this more where they uh they have a new program where they said that their detention centers are so full that they, they can't fit more illegals in them. Uh, and so they're basically not just releasing them into America, but they're releasing them into America with a free cell phone so that uh, the judge can call them when uh, it, it's time for them to come figure out if they're eligible for asylum or not. Mm. Or they can just not take that call, take your free cell phone and stay. I guess that, that, that calls no, up to them. No, <laughs> nobody would ever do that. Well, we, we have made uh, mention of the fact that this is not incompetence, that there is design behind this. And there are the, the, the Biden administration actually does have officials that want this kind of uh, flood of immigration. Uh, the reasons for that are, are dubious. The effects are obvious. Uh, it truly is 
dangerous and detrimental to the United States and is, is doing enormous harm. And it is prophesied that that would happen. Yeah. When well, you definitely see some of these, especially these big migrant caravans coming here. I mean, some of them, you've, you've even seen them flying uh, vote for Biden flags. And so, you know, uh, and then there's, uh, yeah, just all sorts of with these unverified ballots and stuff like that, illegals who have voted. So they definitely benefit the the democrats whether they're voting illegally or whether they're actually able to get asylum or or residency eventually and then and then vote for the democratic party so i mean there is definitely regardless of the drug cartel problems and other crime problems this is causing uh the democrats kind of view this as a (laughs) i guess a a necessary sacrifice to increase their voter roles but i have an article uh, i believe it's already up on the website entitled drug cartels take charge of border that uh, covers a little bit more about the the cartels coming with these immigrants but also um, points to a a prophecy that our uh, editor-in-chief has pointed to in his article communism in america today one in um, hosea chapter 7 verses 8 through 12 that talks about uh, ephraim being mixed up with foreigners like a cake on turn the foreigners devour his strength unknown to them Uh, and that points out that that hosea actually wrote that prophecy when um when King Jeroboam II was king of Israel and the, his capital was in the, the tribal allotment of Ephraim. And so his his uh, mention of Ephraim there is he's more referring to the capital uh, or, or the most prominent tribe of those northern tribes of Israel, which would include Ephraim uh, and Manasseh primarily and some others. And so when, when you put that in context of what uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote in the United States and Britain and Prophecy, showing that uh, Ephraim is primarily the British Commonwealth and Manasseh is uh, primarily the United States, this prophecy about Ephraim being mixed with foreigners is really about these northern tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, Britain and the United States, having their strength devoured by all these uh, foreign immigrants coming uh, into uh, into their nations. Now, anciently, that was mostly Syrians or Armenians immigrating into Israel in Jeroboam's time. But in modern time, uh, it's, it's primarily uh, like Islamist in uh, Middle Easterners in England and Hispanics like Mexicans and Central American in the United States that are uh, are coming into the nation uh, unvetted and unchecked and then just really devouring uh, both their economic and um, economic strength, social cohesion, uh, uh, draining draining resources from law enforcement departments, uh, and just causing all sorts of problems in the nation. They're bringing the drug cartels. Uh, and other things like that. It really is kind of almost like the biggest domestic security threat to the United States today uh, and prophesied right back there in, uh, in Hosea 7. A major security problem and one that is growing rapidly. Go check out Andrew's article, Drug Cartels Take Charge of Border. Uh, you can read that at thetrumpet.com. We thank you very much for that, Andrew. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, China expanding its nuclear capability, some fascinating military deals between Germany and Israel, and the mainstream media finally admitting that Hunter Biden's laptop was, in fact, Hunter Biden's laptop. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. A U.S. official is sounding the alarm about the risks of what he calls breathtaking nuclear expansion being undertaken by China. For this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, the head of the U.S. Strategic Command spoke about this at a hearing with uh, American lawmakers on Tuesday. This is Admiral Charles Richard, and he said that What's happening right now with China's nuclear arsenal is, as you just said, a breathtaking expansion. You know, just a breathtaking expansion in its nuclear power. So some some powerful language there. In this testimony, Admiral Richard discussed China's advancements with directed energy weapons and missile defense systems, also anti-satellite weapons. He drew particular attention to China's recent test of an ICBM-launched hypersonic glide vehicle. Um, with that last one, he said it was, quote, the greatest distance and longest flight time of any land attack weapon system of any nation to date. And it has profound implications for strategic stability. So the bulk of his uh, testimony has not been published, and it was a closed-door hearing, so we're not really sure about all the specifics of the evidence that he was pointing to. But even just in light of the segments that were published, it's easy to see that it's, you know, it's not at all overstating things to call this a breathtaking expansion of China's nuclear firepower. How advanced is China's nuclear capability? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really come a long way under... Chinese President Xi Jinping. Before him, for for decades, China had just 20 um, ICBM silos, you know, the locations from which it can fire its its most powerful nuclear weapons. But in recent years, he has built that up to 250 of those silos. So more than 12 times what China had for a long time. Um, Alongside those silos, the rocket force of the People's Liberation Army also now operates about 100 road mobile ICBM launchers. Also, in the last few years, China has brought six of its Typo 94 Gen class submarines online. Those are each armed with uh, 12 nuclear capable missiles. And then they've also been developing nuclear-capable subsonic strategic stealth bombers. That's the Xi'an H-20. Each of those can, really, they're believed to be able to rival the U.S.'s B-2 bombers. So when you put all that together, you see that China does have a nuclear triad. You know, it can fire nuclear weapons from land, sea, and air. And he's also been focusing on nuclear material. You know, you've got to have the... uh, plutonium to build all these warheads. And right now we do know that China's uh, got several advanced nuclear power facilities under construction. They have the type of fast breeder reactors that make large amounts of weapons grade plutonium. So all of this together, it it does show that China's nuclear power is, is in the midst of a breathtaking expansion. It's, it's amazing to hear about this in light of, uh, Russia making similar kinds of advancements with Iran uh, and the Iran nuclear deal in its final stages that will uh, ultimately end up with Iran being a nuclear power. These nations are just working so rapidly and aggressively to try to procure this uh, technology and to expand and improve this technology. At the same time, you have the story about the United States uh, with all of these nuclear bombs that are uh, stationed in Europe basically turning over the ability of, say, Germany, giving them the uh, stealth nuclear fighter, the F-35, that could deliver those bombs, and really just a, a, a 
very much the opposite uh, determination on the part of America and just letting this technology go, not particularly interested in advancing it. But what you're seeing in these nations really is propelling the world toward a prophesied nuclear war. That's right. Yeah. And and at the same time, North Korea is making big improvements in its delivery systems for nuclear weapons. Uh, you've, you hear whispers from Saudi Arabia, Japan, South Korea about developing their mm. own programs. You've got nuclear Pakistan with its arsenal. Always kind of a big question mark hanging over that about the ability of uh, terrorists to get their mm -hmm. hands on that. So, yeah, all of these developments show just how fragile the global, the global order has become. And if you look at Bible prophecy, as you said, there are many passages that talk about a major war that will soon break out. Um, prophecy tells us that this war will not start with Russia and China, but there'll be major players in it. And Matthew 24 says that it'll be so destructive, it will have the capacity to wipe out human life from the planet. So from that detail, we know that this is talking about nuclear war and other, other kinds of uh, weapons of mass destruction. We do have a booklet, Nuclear Armageddon is at the door, that points to those prophecies that Jeremiah was referring to. It is a really important little booklet uh, that you, you, you would do well to, uh, to request a copy of and take a look at. Uh, we thank you very much for that, Jeremiah. More information is emerging about how Germany plans to spend some of that money that it wants to dump into its military. The German parliament approved arming some drones that it has ordered from Israel. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating story because it's a, a dramatic indication of the change in mindset that we're seeing in Germany. In that article uh, that you talked about in the first half from Mr. Flurry, Germany is transforming before your eyes. Uh, you know, he talks about the, the big change in military spending from Germany, but he says in that as important as the boost in defense spending is, the change in rhetoric and attitude could be even bigger. Uh, and if we get a concrete example of that with this shift over armed drones, I mean, on, on one hand, I could see, you know, you could say, well, it's not a ne necessarily a huge deal. This is 140 missiles. It's uh, only, quote unquote, about 150 million US dollars. But this was a huge debate in Germany for years about should we arm drones? And they went back and forth. I mean, I, I think it's just fascinating. If you just go to Google and type in something like Germany drone debate, you know, there are several years of articles there about this debate. One of them from, from Defense News, NATO chief wades into fiery German debate on armed drones. This was a really controversial thing. You know, there was one camp that wanted Germany to get armed drones, and there was a big camp within Germany that was dead set against that, that was saying, you know, this is exactly the kind of weaponry that is taboo for the German military. It is taboo for a reason, and we do not want to have these armed drones. So you know, this debate went on for years. They ended up coming up with a compromise. Well, we'll buy some drones, but we won't arm them. And that compromise didn't really end up pleasing anybody, but, uh, but you know, that's what they did. Then you get the Ukraine invasion. Then you get this big change in attitude that this change in military spending reflects. And just so quickly, Germany says we're arming the drones. And it's not controversial. There was no big fiery debate. I mean, sure, it made a few headlines within Germany this week, but it's not uh, on the front pages of Spiegel over the, uh, you know, the latest issue of Spiegel or anything like that. It's, it, it just skates in under the surface. It shows us just in a matter of weeks, just like we were talking about in the first half, how much 
Germany has has changed that that we can just do this without any kind of a really a fanfare at all. Yeah, that is uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, in the article that uh, Josue Michels wrote about this uh, this Bundestag approval of this purchase, uh, he drew attention to the uh, relationship between Germany and Israel and kind of talked about this in light of the. Uh, a German purchase of those F-35s from the United States, and it demonstrates the, the increasing trust that these nations have with Germany making these kinds of unprecedented decisions uh, such as this. Maybe you could just talk about the, uh, the Israeli-German relationship and this larger context. Yeah, it's, that is another important point from this trend. These are Israeli Heron uh, TP drones. Israel does make some some very good drones, and so uh, you know Israel is, or, or Germany is keen to use that technology. You know, Israel's forced to use a lot of military technology that other nations just aren't forced to. So they are really at the leading edge of this and, and missile defense and some other things that that I think Brent will get into in in, in just a minute. So you've got this relationship where. Well, basically of complete trust between Israel and Germany. Israel will, will buy Germany submarines to put their nuclear weapons on. Uh, and Israel will quite happily sell Germany, uh, you know, these drones and, and whatever else Germany wants. And you, you, you know, he tied that in, uh, Joshua tied that in with the uh, America being willing to sell Germany their F-35s. You know, all these countries, they're willing to sell Germany their cutting edge technology. There is no um th there's no hesitation about that whatsoever and this is something that uh, mr flurry also wrote about in the uh in the trumpet print uh america's naive trust in germany and really with these these drones you could add israel's naive trust in germany the bible has a lot of very specific prophecies about uh you know germany israel britain america Israel and the Middle East, trusting Germany and that trust being betrayed. And you can see that being built now as these countries give Germany some of the best of their military technology. Well, I'd encourage you to go check out that article from uh, Josue, Germany purchases missiles for Israeli drones. And we'll link to a couple of other articles, those, uh, those other articles that Richard mentioned there about this. Thank you for that, Richard. That's not the only military cooperation between Israel and Germany that moved forward this week. Germany is advancing plans to purchase a missile defense system from Israel. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, this missile defense system known as Arrow 3 is the premier uh, missile defense for countering ballistic missiles. These are ballistic, these are missiles that were fired at great ranges that are going into or out of the atmosphere and then potentially holding nuclear weapons coming back into the atmosphere to hit their target. And this is something that has been developed between Israel and the United States in the past decade. It had its first successful test two years ago. And then this first, uh, another very successful test earlier this year where two um, ballistic missiles were fired at Israel uh, or in the test. And then Israel could send up this uh, two interceptors that basically make this interception in outer space. This is something that can travel up to 62 miles in from the Earth's surface and then uh, intercept one of these missiles coming in. And just this week on Monday, uh, the head of the German uh, Air Force, I believe it is, uh, said that, yeah, the head of the German Air Force, Ingo Gerhardt, told Jerusalem Post that they have been approved by both Israel and the United States government to purchase 
the Arrow 3 uh, defensive missile system. He, ba- he said this, uh, for he said, we have something that can deal with short-range threats like the Iron Dome that Israel has for higher interceptors. We have the Pat- Patriot weapon system. But if it means threats of a range of 15,000 kilometers, then it's the atmos- exo-atmospheric. We don't have anything. And that's why I chose to look at the Arrow 3 and we're really interested in the system. So this would be the first time that anyone outside the United States and Israel has access to this defensive weapon system. And it looks like Germany is the one that's going to be spending about $2 billion of its $100 billion that it was earmarked towards, uh, towards this system. Well, further evidence of the uh, the level of trust and cooperation between Israel and Germany. We didn't get into it much uh, with Richard, but there is a really strong prophetic angle to to that. We've talked quite a lot in the past about uh, just the Bible's warnings to Israel to in uh, trusting Germany. Um, but there's there's this other element of Germany uh, actually purchasing well, like why is germany purchasing this uh and just what threats it's so concerned about that it feels like it needs this technology right and of course the the reason that the jerusalem post brought out was because of russia and the danger of russia to the east of using ballistic missiles attacking it and yet i just listened to a um an interview with the uh, creator of the the uh the Arrow 3 system, and he basically said that this system is designed not for some of the weaponry, some of the ballistic missiles, the hypersonic ballistic missiles that Russia has, but it's actually designed for the ballistic missiles that Iran has. Um, this system, which I think uh, the Jerusalem Post should have written, <laughs> should have written more about that, because if you're if you're talking about biblical prophecy, we know that there is going to be a face-off between uh, Iran and a German-led Europe, and so. Germany right now has nothing to protect itself from Iranian ballistic missiles that are carrying a nuclear warhead. And earlier, uh, late last year, Iran came out and said that they were going to extend its ballistic missile uh, distance, its range of its ballistic missiles. Apparently, the Ayatollah had put a cap on that, which basically got to some parts in southeastern Europe, some of their ballistic missiles. And they said, we're going to increase that range. And the range would increase everything up to Iceland. And so this is, this is, Iran has put forward its plan to put all of Europe under range of its nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. And now Germany is thinking, what do we have to do to protect ourselves against that? And they're buying the only weapons, only really sufficient, I think, uh, weapon system, defensive missile system to shoot down such such missiles. And this won't be active until 2025. So they have to get to work on that right now. And, and that's what they're doing, I think, with this purchase. Well, there are a lot of biblical prophecies that uh, this kind of touches on. Where would you send people to get the best overview of why this is prophetically significant? Uh, the book King of the South, written by Mr. Flurry, is very good to detail the prophecies of the clash between Iran and a German-led Europe that really does set off uh, World War III. And the, I think this, this, this purchase by Germany fits into that context. All right, thank you for that, Brent. We'll finish with revelations about the Hunter Biden laptop, the mainstream media finally acknowledging that that laptop with so much information showing the corruption of the Biden family is in fact real. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. 
Yeah, Democrats this week blocked a subpoena from Congress to try to get Hunter Biden to actually testify about this laptop. So you see that the the Congress is still covering from the Bidens, but the media seems to be uh, throwing him under the bus and that you actually had big exposés in both the New York Times and the Washington Post over the past uh, week or two, uh, confirming that the Hunter Biden laptop really is his laptop, uh, confirming many of the allegations that the House Intelligence Community uh, made a year ago about his corrupt business deals with Burisma, Ukrainian oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, and uh, and Chinese officials, and even revealing some some new details not uh, not exposed in that report. And so something <laughs> something's big's definitely changed there because if you'll if you'll remember, it was only 17 months ago when uh, it, the New York Post broke this story about the laptop and was uh, the the politicians dismissed it as Russian misinformation. None of the major media outlets would cover it. And uh, and like Google, Facebook and, and Twitter even uh, even teamed up to start censoring the post with with Twitter locking the post account mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Facebook changing its algorithm so the story wouldn't get coverage. And of course, a big reason for that is that when the post broke it, it was about a month before the election and then subsequent polls have shown that like even one in six democrats say they may not have voted for joe biden had they heard about this laptop information before the election and so the, the the media definitely colluded to make sure that they uh they did not hear any of this until after joe biden was already in office and and only now are reporting on it. And I mean, a couple things have changed in the past 17 months. For one, uh, despite the media's best efforts between what the Post has done and what the uh, this House, House Intelligence Committee has done and what other conservative outlets have done, some of this information has leaked out to the public anyway. So the Times and the, the Post aren't really telling uh, a lot of people that they already know, they're just giving additional details. Uh, also true, as our, uh, our editor-in-chief had pointed out to uh, the editorial department recently, is there's been some big revelations just in the past uh, couple weeks about um, uh, a, a big-time New York Times reporter getting caught on film by Project Veritas saying that they're January 6th protest were nothing to be, were not an insurrection, nothing to be concerned about. His colleagues were blowing this way out of proportion. Uh, it was really just a way <laughs> to distract people from the uh, election theft investigation that was supposed to go on in Congress that day. Mm-hmm. And so now with that out, the the Times definitely has a, a vested interest in trying to uh draw people's attention someplace else like guys i no 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 don't 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 look at how we stole the election uh look at hunter biden's laptop because it's like we you've probably already heard about that anyway so it's like we we, we've tried to cover this up for 17 months but uh if it if it's going to distract people from this january 6 investigation we we might as well start talking about it now Mm. what what's your view I think it's quite extraordinary that the press is acknowledging this and that they're still uh, 
acting like there's absolutely no connection between what Hunter Biden was doing and Joe Biden. Right. Yeah, they're uh yeah, you've definitely had like Jen Sake and others that uh keep trying to make a point that like, okay, well Hunter's a private citizen, so it's like said he's this isn't has no connection to the government when really, I mean, just a little bit of common sense shows that like Burisma is a shell company masquerading as a natural gas company. It's like Hunter Biden has no expertise in oil exploration or natural gas or or really any qualifications whatsoever to sit on the board of directors for a company like that, except that he was the son of the vice president at the time. And uh, and you're starting to get more information now about that, like, like significant portions of his uh, uh, of the money he was making was going back to um, uh, his uncle and his aunt and, and in, in even Joe Biden himself. So this is definitely a national <laughs> a national security threat because it's that um, opens opens people up to uh, opens the Biden family up to like even blackmail. Right. Actually, I think that's one of the videos. Um, one of the videos on that laptop. I mean, the the media outlets have reported had have had to do some pretty heavy editing on it because it, it would be way too lewd to 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 watch. Uh, watch otherwise, where he's he's actually you've got Hunter Biden like on video and audio explaining to uh, a prostitute in some hotel that there's at least two other laptops, and he thinks the Russians may have at least one of them. Uh, and so you're looking at these corrupt business deals, these prostitution allegations, these drug allegations. And then so and then you've got the Russians. <laughs> Russians have this laptop. I mean, it really does open open them up to uh, being able to, to to be blackmailed in a way that's a huge threat to national security, explaining why even some Democrats now say they probably wouldn't have voted for Biden if they would have known <laughs> that he had this type of stuff in his his closet, because it does make him uh a really compromised official. We do have a uh, an article on the website now from Stephen Flurry, a trumpet brief that went out earlier this week. Legacy Media finally reports on Hunter's crimes, and he also points to our our booklet, Character in Crisis, showing just how important the character of our leaders is for the nation's security. Uh, Go check that out. We'll link to that in the show notes for the program today. Thank you, Andrew. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of F.A. Hayek. We shall not grow wiser before we learn that much of what we have done was very foolish. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.